0: So let's give a little background on the book of Jude. It's it's not well known and it's probably actually very underpreached and underutilized by the church and I I have my instincts as to why that probably is is because of the topics that are covered within the epistle. Topics like God's sovereign election Divine foreknowledge, apostasy, judgment by fire, lordship of Christ—these are not topics that are that are talked about enough in church uh, these days. And so, so many churches won't even touch this 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 book. Jude is what is, uh, is, is part of a group of epistles known as the general epistles. Uh, these general epistles go from Hebrews to Jude. So it includes Hebrews, James, uh, the two Peters, and the three Johns, and Jude. And they're called general epistles because we don't actually know the specific people or church that these epistles were written to. Unlike Paul, who Paul... He always addresses a particular church or a particular group of churches in his letters. Uh, These general epistles typically, we don't know the exact recipients and who they are. So, um, also, Jude has a direct connection to the book of 2 Peter. And you can read scholars and commentators, some scholars will say that 2 Peter was written first and that Jude took 2 Peter and just broke it down into something smaller. Some people say that Jude was written first and Peter just expounded upon this letter. So there is, there is certainly a relationship between 2 Peter and Jude because a, a minimum of like 20 verses that we see in Jude are actually very closely related to things that are said in 2 Peter. In this particular letter, though, what we're going to see is we're going to see Jude calling out some heretics that have come in to this fellowship. And another reason why I think maybe churches don't use this book as much as they should is because we just we live in a time where we just want to be tolerant of everybody. Right? We're. we're being nice is the most important thing that we can do. Overspeaking truth. It's about, it's about being nice. You don't want to offend someone else's personal truth. Right? <laughs> right? We, we, we just, we got to be nice and we have to be politically correct. Jude, not so much. He, he is, he's not that way. Jude is not politically correct. And if you've been at four points for longer than five minutes, you know that we value truth over feelings. Amen. Because God's word is true, every man's a liar. Right? Now, hear me closely as we begin to see Jude call out these heretics that have come into the fellowship, hear me closely, we all know that, all know that guy that's looking for heretics around every corner, okay? We all know that person that's the, the heresy police that is, you know, if you don't believe that in historic premillennialism, then you're outside of the faith, right? You're a heretic if you're not post-mill or something, okay? listen. That's that's not what what Jude is encouraging us to do. He's not encouraging us to be looking for heresy everywhere we go. But these particular people have a particular danger that they're presenting within this particular body of fellowship, in this particular church, okay, or group of churches. We're not exactly sure who it is. So let's come Jeremy's going to do a great job. He's going to talk about all the first Enoch and the assumption of Moses and all of the extra-biblical pseudepigraphal works that are quoted in the, in the letter. That's not, that's not me. Jeremy's going to do that, so we're not going to get into that this morning. We don't have time for that. And he'll tell you what all those things mean. <laughs> so so let's, let's come to our text we're going, to go, we're going to be in the first four verses this morning. That's going to be our task, should we choose to accept it, this morning. From these first four verses, you guys know I like to give you points, because it keeps me organized as well. I got three main things that we need to, when we come to the end of our time together today, we need to know these three things, and if we haven't, that's my bad, okay? We need to know, number one, who is the writer of the letter? Number two, we want to know as much as we can who are the recipients of the letter. And three, we want to know the reason that the letter has been written. So who's the writer? Who are the recipients? What's the reason? Okay? Everybody good so far? Praise the Lord. Let's read verse 1a together. So we're looking at who the writer of the epistle is. He writes, verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Okay, so everybody knows the New New Testament was written in Greek, right? In case you didn't know that, that's... That's the New Testament was written in Greek. And the name for Jude in Greek is Judas. And you're, you're probably, your mind probably went exactly where mine was, right? The guy who betrayed the Lord. Okay, that's not him. This is not him. Okay, so we want to know who is this Judas? There are several in the New Testament. So which one is it? Well, he gives us a, a major hint by saying that he is the brother of James, right? Well, there are a lot of Jameses in the New Testament too. So so now we need to know, we need to figure out who the James is in order to know who the Judas is, okay? So two things that will tell us who James is. The first thing, which James are we talking about? Well, there's only one James in the New Testament that is well known enough to where somebody could just call him James and everybody knew who they were talking about. Jesus is brother, right? It's the brother of the Lord, right? He's the, he's the main leader of the Jerusalem church. He was the one who presided over the Jerusalem council in the book of Acts. That's the James. James the just is what he's called. That's the James that we're talking about, brother of the Lord. So that gives us one hint. The second hint is there's only one James in the New Testament that is said to have a brother, Named Judas. And that's found in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, where the names of some of Jesus' siblings are listed, and both James and Judas are listed among those, among those siblings. So we know who Ju- we know who James is, right? He's a brother of the Lord, and we know that he has a brother named Judas, and there's only one in the New Testament, James, that has a brother named Judas, and he also is is a sibling of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, we can know with confidence that the Judas or the Jude that is writing this epistle is the brother of the Lord Jesus himself. Okay, now, you may be, my mind went here. Maybe yours didn't, and if it did, if you think like me, that's probably a problem on your part, but I wouldn't, (laughs) once you get inside this head, there's no turning back, baby, Sorry, Sorry. I'm sorry, Ace Ventura, sorry. (laughs) So you may be thinking what I'm kind of thinking, which is, uh, first of all, did anybody who's older grow up with siblings? Anybody have siblings now? Anybody have siblings that you resent because of how they never get in trouble? or they never did anything wrong and their parents never had to get on to them and they always scoop up the dog poop from the yard when they're supposed to and take out the trash when they're supposed to. Anybody have siblings like that? where they just were just goody-two-shoes all the time, always obeying the rules? I can't imagine how I would feel if I were Jude or James. And my brother is literally the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and never did anything wrong, always scooped up the dog poop when he was supposed to and, you know, brushed the cat and whatever else, you know. <laughs> but, but they probably didn't like him. Right, They probably resented him for that. And that, that could have led to the fact that in Scripture, we, have, we really have no uh, record of any of his siblings, Jesus' siblings, believing in him as the Messiah until after the resurrection, right? <clears throat> probably because they had resentment toward him. And then one day, the scales fell from their eyes and they recognized that, G- that their brother is the Lord, of the universe. So as I read this, I also begin to think why would Jude not use that as an introduction into the epistle? If he wants this letter to have some gusto behind it, why would he not say I'm the brother of the Lord? Instead, he says he's the brother of James, but then, but he calls himself a servant of Jesus, and that word doulos actually can mean even something even deeper, like a sl- slaves. The doulos were the lowest ones of society, right? Right? Jude here is confessing himself to be below Jesus, his earthly brother. So, so why would he why would he start his letter like that? Why wouldn't he say, "I'm the brother of Jesus. You got to listen to what I say." Well, it's because the is the letter going to have more weight if he lifts himself up, or is the letter going to have more weight if he lifts Jesus up? The, the, the letter is going to have the most weight if he magnifies who Christ is, and he decreases who he is, and so he calls himself a slave of his earthly brother, who he now knows is his Lord and his master. Over and against these heretics, if you look at the end of verse 4, they deny that Jesus is their Lord and Master. And right, so we'll see that conflict take place. So we, Brent said a few weeks ago, he said to us when we we're in Exodus that we're all slaves of something, right? We're all enslaved to something. So this morning, what are, what are we enslaved to? Are we like Jude and we recognize who our Lord and our master is? Or are we enslaved like we talked about last week? Do we have idols that we are enslaved to that we're becoming like those idols, right? If you remember from Psalm 115, it's those who trust in idols become like them. So are we becoming more and more like the things of this world? Are we enslaved to those things? Or are are we confessing that Jesus is our master and we're slaves of him now because we were bought with a price? So we know who our writer is. It's the brother of Jesus. So now let's turn to our our attention to who are the recipients of this letter. Who 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 are the recipients? You're gonna find, you're gonna see as we move through this letter, Jude loves to do things in threes. He loves, to, he loves to do things. We're, we're going to call them triads. He loves to do things in triads. He's going to give us two right here. One at the end of verse one, and one in verse two, and then verses five through seven, there's a triad. In verse 11, there's a triad. He loves to give things in threes. There's no deep theological meaning to that. I'm just pointing it out for your attention for the future because you're going to see that moving forward. And we're going to see two of them right here today. So let's look at that first triad. End of verse 1 says this, and I'm going to give you three words that we need to underline. Who is this letter addressed to? It's addressed to those who are called, underline called, beloved in God the Father, underline beloved, and kept for Jesus Christ. Underline that word, kept. Again, we don't know exactly who these Christians are. But we know this is a a group of Christians that he's writing to. And And it's more than likely, at least some of them, if not most of them, are Jewish Christians based on how many Old Testament references he's going to make through the rest of the letter. They had to have had, most of these people, these Christians, would have had to have some understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament and even traditional literature that's not in the Bible. They would have had to have some knowledge of that. Therefore, I think we can assume that at least some of these recipients are Christian Jews that have been converted to Christianity. Let's take them one at a time. So we're gonna talk about those who are called and then we're gonna talk about the other two that describe those who are called, okay? So let's take this one at a time. I wanna give you a quick public service announcement. If you're not familiar or have not studied reformed soteriology, Jude is about to give us a lesson in reformed soteriology right here in the, in, in the end of verse one. So we're gonna take these one at a time and we're gonna, it's gonna, be, it's gonna be great. I'm excited about it. Hope you guys are excited too. Okay, so to those who are called, first of all, we need to establish what is calling? What is it? calling? What is this calling? Okay, I'm going to give you two things, two things that this calling is not in order to get to what is this what the calling actually is. Two things the calling is not. The calling that is referred to here is not Jesus is standing at the door knocking on the door of your heart and the doorknob is on the inside and you just have to turn it and let him in. That's not the calling. That's Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, and that's talking to Christians. That's not talking to unbelievers. Jesus doesn't stand at the door of your heart and knock and beg and hope against hope that you just turn the knob and let him in. That's not what this calling is. Second thing this calling is not. It's not the general call of the gospel. So every week you come into this church and you hear the gospel proclaimed, there is a general gospel call that you will hear every single week when you come through these doors. We preach the gospel every week. That's the general call, but that's not the calling that we're we're talking about here, okay? I had some big, long, Puritanic definition that I came up with my own self about what effectual calling actually means. And if you want it, I can give it to you later, but my my wife yesterday was like, nobody's gonna be able to know what those words are and like what you're talking about. So I'm not gonna say it, say it, but if you want it, okay. So what is this calling? Well, I'm gonna give you a couple of examples. What does it mean that that this, what is this calling? It is Ephesians 2.5. You were dead and God made you alive. That's what this calling is. God, God takes your dead, spiritually dead self and brings life to it where there was no spiritual life before. He brings dead to life. That's what this calling is. That's what, that's what effectual calling is. Okay? And, and by the way, it is a monergistic work. That was one of the words I like, It is a monergistic work. That means you didn't do anything. God did it. Okay? That's what this calling is. And by the way, the word ecclesia in the New Testament is the word, the Greek word for church, and it literally means to call out. So, so the church is literally a gathering of the called out ones. Okay? So, so that's what the church is. The church is a group of people gathered together because they've been called from dead to life sovereignly by the hand of God. One more example. This is the T-ball one, okay? All right? Lazarus, come forth. No, no, Jesus. I'm just enjoying stinking it up in here. <laughs> I just love the smell. I just want to stay here. I've been here four days. I'm, just, I'm, I'm good. No. What did Lazarus do? He came out. Jesus wasn't standing at the tomb asking a dead man to come out. He told him, come out, and he came. That's calling. He, called, he calls, we come. He's God, you're not. That's calling. So that begs the question then, who are the called? And the, uh, the next two phrases describe who the called are. Number one, they are beloved in God the Father. They are, the called are the ones that are those who are, have been loved by the Father, who the Father has set his love upon them. That's who the called are. Let me give you two examples here of what this is not. This does not mean that on some random Tuesday in April, God capriciously just said, I think I'm gonna call someone today. No, we, we do not serve a capricious God. Right? God has set his love upon his people far before he just decided in a moment to do it. That's that's those two things are not kosher together. Nor. Nor does this mean that God looked down the corridor of time and saw who would love him, saw who would choose to love him, and so therefore he chose to love them. That's not not what we're talking about. That would mean that God had to learn something in order to respond to it, and if God ever has to learn something, that means he's not omniscient, and that means he's not God. That's open theism, and that's heresy, okay? So, so God didn't look down the corridor of time and base a decision to love you or me based on the fact that we, he saw that we were going to love him, okay? That's not what that means. That's not what it means to be loved in God the Father, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read, Paul does a best job of this, way better job of describing this than I do. So I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 1. This is what it means to be loved by the Father. Ephesians 1.3 says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose, that's the love, He chose. He chose. That that tells us that he loved us. That is his demonstration of his love in eternity past that he chose us. But he chose us in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world. So he didn't choose us on Tuesday, April fifteenth, nineteen 1997. He chose us before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, there's the love, right? He, that's the Father. So there, you guys see what we're doing here, right? You see what this loved by the Father is, right? In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be loved by the Father. I got time. Okay, would you mind putting the Charles Spurgeon quote up there? Charles Spurgeon said this, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. We're not worthy. We haven't done anything. It is God. It is God who set his love upon sinners that had rebelled against him. That's what it means to be loved in the Father. Second thing to describe those who are called. So they're loved in the Father, and they're kept for Christ. Everybody everybody loves the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Everybody loves it, right? You can't lose your salvation. That's one we can all agree on, right? We all can, yeah, can't lose our salvation. It's true. If you're called, you will be kept, If you're truly called, if the Father has set his love upon you, you will come to Christ, and Christ will keep you. That's the beautiful thing. I love, actually, how the King James Version puts it, believe it or not. It translates it, preserved in Christ. Man, that's a a beautiful thing. If you're called this morning, you will be preserved in Christ. If you remember when we talked about the good shepherd, right? No one can snatch them out of the Father's hands. No one can snatch them out of the Son's hands. They are working together to preserve their sheep. This is this is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing. I know I know the I know the the, the middle school and high schoolers just went through Romans 8. The golden chain, right? Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorifies, right? It's an unbreakable chain. Those whom God has set his love upon will come to him and they will be kept for eternity. Man, we we can rest in that. No one can Romans 8, 38 and 39, no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our lord this is this is a beautiful thing second thing second second thing second triad so so beloved and kept and called that's the first triad second triad look at verse 2 the triad is mercy peace and love mercy peace and love be multiplied to you. He Jude wants his recipients to grow in love and in mercy and in peace. And they're going to need it. They're going to need it because he's going to call them in the next verse. He's going to call them to contend for the faith. He's going to call them to go and fight for the faith. And they're going to need more mercy and more peace and more love. And contending for the faith is is in direct connection to these three characteristics, and I'm going to show them to you really quickly here. So, mercy. Why do these Christians need to be growing and being multiplied in mercy? That's because of verse 22. Look at verse 22. He says, Jude says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Part of what he's calling these Christians to do to contend for the faith is to have mercy on those who doubt, that's part of what it means to contend for the faith. And so he's asking for mercy to grow so that they can show mercy to others. Peace. right? Peace is not just an, a- an absence of conflict. Peace is, this word peace means that things are per- aright, that they are as they should be. So why are they going to need to grow in peace? Look at verse 16. These, he's talking about the heretics that are in the church. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Why do they need peace? Because these guys are causing divisions. Those, those list of things that we just read, that's going to divide the church. And so they need, they need the peace of Christ to rule in their own hearts so that they can contend for the faith. And love. They need love. They need love because in verse 21, Jude tells them to keep themselves in the love of God. They need to be growing and recognizing God's love for them so that they can continue to push and grow in their love for the Lord. And that's how they're gonna contend for the faith. So now we know who the writer is and we know who the recipients are. What's the reason for the letter? There's a positive reason and a negative reason. The the positive reason is gonna be found in verse three and the negative reason is gonna be found in verse four. So come down to verse three and let's read it together. Beloved, although... I was very eager to write you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You see, this sounds very pastoral to me, the way that Jude is writing to these Christians. So I'm, I'm going to give you four reasons why I think Jude has a personal relationship with the fellow, this fellowship of believers. Why I think he possibly even pastored this church. Okay. Number one, he calls them beloved. Right. That could just be a general beginning of a letter. But if you read the rest of verse 3, it seems like there's more there than that. Second reason. He was already planning to write to them, right? Look at, look at verse three. He says, "He says, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. He wanted to write to them, encouraging them with the gospel. He wanted, to, he wanted to write about their common salvation. So he was already planning on writing to these believers. The third reason why I think he knows these believers is because, and this is an important one, he told them what they needed to hear, not what he wanted, not what they wanted to hear, right? He wanted to write them about a positive thing, right? He wanted to write them encouraging them in the gospel and saying, yeah, let's talk about our common salvation. But he seen, he... As a pastor, as a pastor, he, he see, that was not their need. They did not need to hear that in this moment. What they needed to hear was, you've got creepers that are in the church, and they're going to cause a huge problem, right? So he told them what they needed to hear, and that's why every week we, we open our Bible in this church because you don't need to know what I have to say. I got nothing good to say at all. It's not going to help you at all. We need to know what God says. That's what we need. We don't need a pep, pep talk or we don't need a, you know, go out there and, you know, grab life by the horns. Right? That's not what you need. You can't do that. Last week we talked about trusting in the Lord and in helping us. You can't help yourselves. We need God's help. That's why we open his word. Fourth reason, he's concerned for their souls. You can tell that these, these creepers that have come into the fellowship are really agitating Jude because they're a real threat to these people and their souls. He's concerned for them. So he tells them, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So so what is this faith? Is this faith like personal faith in Jesus? No. Now that's very important for sure, but what he's talking about is he's talking about what Jesus taught the apostles and what the apostles have now passed down to these churches. This is a, the faith that he's talking about is a set of beliefs and traditions that Jesus himself brought to the earth and gave to the apostles. And then in Acts 1, 8, he said, you're going to go out and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea to the end of the earth, and you're going to go spread this faith. And that's what they did. They went and spread the faith and this faith. It that, that starts with the life and death and resurrection of the Lord. That's what this faith is based upon. And then everything that comes from that has been now taken to all the earth. Paul went all over the known world taking this faith. And so Jude is begging these Christians that you got to be ready to fight for this faith that has now been delivered. All right. Anybody, anybody ever read any books on cults or know, know of any cults, right? I know Mormons, I know Scientologists, and I know Jehovah's. There you go. Okay, so how, how were, the, how almost every single cult that was ever started, how did it begin? How did it begin? It began with a person having a private revelation, that's how cults start. You have one dude that goes out into the woods, smokes peyote for three days, and then comes back and says, I've got a new religion. Follow me. I'm the Lord. The Lord showed up to me, you know, when I was smoking peyote. So come on. right? right? Let's go down to Guyana and drink some Kool-Aid. right? Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, man. Don't do that. right?" That's the amazing thing about our faith. Our faith has been once for all delivered. We don't need anyone to have private revelations anymore. We don't need anything to be added to our faith. We don't need anything to be subtracted from our faith. It has been delivered once for all. We don't need anything else, right? We don't need private revelations anymore, right? The very eternal word of the one true and living God became a human and he walked among his creation and he delivered this faith once for all He surrendered, he lived a perfect life We could never live. He died a sacrificial death in our place for our sins. And he rose from the dead. And that is, that's our faith. Everything that we do flows from that. We don't don't need any private revelations, right? So that's the positive. Contend, right? Contend for the faith. What's the negative? Verse four. We're gonna read the first sentence says this. First part. For certain people, this is the negative reason for the letter, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. That's the creepers we were talking about. They're creeping in. Antinomian creeps is what we'll call them. okay Two things about these creeps, just from what we just read. Number one, Jude has such a disdain for them, he doesn't even call them by name. He just calls them certain people. That says a lot, right? You just got these certain people. Second thing, he calls these people, he says about them, they are pot duno. In the Greek. This is a legomena. It is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. And it is a compound word that is made up of three Greek words. And it means that they slipped in secretly. It doesn't mean they were here. Okay? It, It doesn't mean they were like peeking around the corner seeing who was there and trying to sneak in. Here's what makes this group of people so nefarious. They walked right through the front door and acted like they belonged there. And nobody knew otherwise. They walked right into, the, they right, right into this church, right into this fellowship. They came right through the front door and they're like, this is where we belong. That's where a wolf in sheep's clothing comes from. Right? That's Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. They look like sheep. And then when they came into the flock, they begin to devour the sheep. This This is a nefarious group that has come into this fellowship. If you look in verse 12, Jude refers to these people that have come into the flock. He refers to them as hidden reefs. At your love feasts. What does a, what does a reef that a, 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 uh, a driver of a boat who goes over a reef and doesn't see it, what can that reef do to that boat? Destroy it. it will destroy the boat and sink the whole ship. That's what he's saying about these people that have come into the fellowship. He's like, if, if, if we don't do something, they're gonna sink the ship. And they're in your love feast, right? If you don't know what a love feast is, it is Acts chapter 2. They met in homes and they had meals together. But a lot of times in these love feasts, they would also partake of the Lord's table. So you have these wolves that are actually still even partaking of the Lord's Supper with these Christians in this fellowship. That's what makes them so nefarious. And in the rest of verse 4, Jude makes four more statements. Now, he's, he hammers them throughout the whole book. I mean, we could sit here and go through 40 different names that he calls these guys. Okay? He calls them a cloud without water. I mean, he calls them all kinds of stuff. Okay? All right? But in this verse 4, he says four more things about these heretics that have come into the church. By the way, he's not concerned with their doctrine. He never even addresses their doctrine. What he's addressing is their behavior. So we think of heretics as those who deny the Trinity or who deny the, uh, you know, the lordship of Christ. No, he doesn't address their doctrine at all. He addresses what they're, they're living like. Four statements he makes. Number one, who long ago, these people long ago were designated for condemnation. Okay, I just don't have time. But every commentator you read has four or five different options for what it means that they were designated long ago or written about long ago. Okay, so we're just gonna land on some place that we can all agree without having to, you know, parse the Greek and do all this, okay? So, just know, God is not surprised by these heretics. He's not surprised that they're here, and he's warned his people before that this will happen. That's what we need to know, okay? It doesn't matter whether it was the prophecy of Enoch or the blah, 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 okay? We can get it, you know, all of those things, Okay? Just know God is not surprised, and he's warned his people about this and their condemnation he, verses five through seven that Jeremy's going to be in next week he's going to explain what this condemnation is, and he's, Jude is going to give three examples of groups in the past that have been condemned, and he's comparing those three condemnations to the condemnation that will come at the end of the day when these Heretics are judged if they do not repent of their sin, right? Second thing he says, he calls them ungodly people or godless people. And Jeremy actually prayed this in his prayer earlier. We, we know that they're not walking around saying that there is no God. They're not atheists. They're not, they're, they walked into the church. They think they're Christians. They walked into the church acting like Christians, okay? It's Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. What they're doing is they are living their lives as practical atheists. They're living their lives as if they're not going to have to answer for the way that they are living their lives. That's what he means when he says godless. They're functional atheists. Don't we, don't we do that? Don't we live our lives at times at, as functional atheists? Right? Jeremy prayed again earlier. He said in, in his confessional prayer, we have lived this week as functional atheists, all of us at times. This is, a, this, this is convicting for me. This is extremely convicting for me. Third thing he says is they pervert the grace of God into sensuality or licentiousness, okay? There are pastors in this country that have cheated on their wife with eight different women, and they've come back and said, oh, I'm a better Christian for that because God's grace came to me even more because of that. Sorry. Sorry right? Paul's taught opposite of that. He said, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? The answer is, by no means. We cannot, right? We can't pervert God's grace into our ability to do whatever it is that we want. That's antinomianism. Martin Luther coined that phrase. One of his students was off the rocker saying that, you know, Once you're forgiven of sin, it doesn't matter what you do anymore because you've already been forgiven of it. No, no. God saves us from something, but he also saves us to something. He doesn't save us and leave us where we are, right? The same grace that saved us is the same grace that sanctifies us. You can't have one without the other. Love and Oh, sorry. Al Bundy there. Sorry. I don't know why Al Bundy came into my head. God's grace is not chopped up into different graces. If He saved you by grace, He's going to make you more like Jesus by grace. Fourth thing He says about these heretics, into verse four, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, these people that have come into the fellowship, They want Jesus as their Savior. They want the benefit of Jesus being their Savior, but they don't want the requirement of being obedient to him as their Lord. Unlike Jude, who says, I'm a slave of Christ. He's bought me with a price. He he owns me. He is my master. These people they want no master other than themselves. Jesus said in John 14:15, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Can't say you love Jesus and live like a pagan. have a charge that I want to give. So we know the writer, we know the recipients, and we know the reason for the letter. I have two groups of people that I want to address this morning. And they're the only two groups of people that are in this text. And they're the only two groups of people that have ever existed in the history of the world. There are only two groups of people. The first group of people are the called. The second group of people are the condemned. I want to address the called first. If you're in this place this morning and you are called, you have been loved by the Father and you are being kept by the Son, the call, the charge for you this morning is contend for the faith. The Greek word is agonizomai. It means it's where we get our word "agonize." Jude is calling these Christians to agonize for the faith that has been once for all delivered to them. Except he adds a he adds an E.P. on the front of it. He strengthens the agonizing. This means agonize to the point of exhaustion. It's an athletic training term. We need to agonize to the point of exhaustion for this faith that has been delivered to us. And you may be saying, well, how do we do that? Well, we take the heretics out back and we stone them to death. That's what we do. No. Jude never says one word to these Christians about doing anything to the actual heretics. He doesn't say to do anything to them. He tells them they need to do something for themselves. Let's read verses 20 through 23. He, this, is his, this is what it means. This is what Jude means to contend for the faith. We're not stoning heretics. We're not searching for heretics under every bush. We're not looking around for heresy all the time. No, this is what we need to do. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt save others by snatching them out of the fire to show mercy with fear hating even the garments stained by flesh that's what it means to contend for the faith are you in the are you are you agonizing over god's word every single day Are you agonizing in prayer to the Lord every single day? Are you agonizing, snatching others out of the fire every single day? Because that's what it means to contend for the faith, and that's what Jude is calling these Christians to do. There's another group the condemned. If you're in this room this morning and you have not trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, this morning you stand under the condemnation of God. But I have a charge for you this morning if that's you. Come to Jesus. Come to Him. Those who come to Him, He will never cast out. He loves you. He will receive you if you come to Him in repentance and faith. Come. Don't delay. He will will have you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come to Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through the finished work of our High Priest Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that your word would be firmly implanted in our hearts and we would be transformed in the renewing of our minds by your word. Would your spirit continue to move and to act sovereignly today as we go about our lives? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.